I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Want a weekly roundup of the best CBC Radio programming? Subscribe to the CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Get a digest of the week's top stories. Read in-depth articles. Listen to interviews and documentaries. And get the lowdown on upcoming stories from CBC Radio 1 that you need to hear. To subscribe, go to cbc.ca slash radio and look for the subscribe button. The CBC Radio 1 newsletter. Be informed. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back. Today is a special bonus episode of Play Me, an interview with the playwright of What a Young Wife Ought to Know, Hannah Moscovich. If you're new to our show, we take some of the country's best theatrical productions and transform them into audio dramas. We then podcast them in three chapters and follow each show up with an in-depth interview with the playwright. If you haven't already listened to What a Young Wife Ought to Know, we highly recommend you do so. It is gut-wrenching, but it's also funny and sensual, and it's one of the best pieces of theatre we've come across. You can listen to it by subscribing to our feed through your favourite podcast player, or you can listen to it online by visiting cbc.ca forward slash playmecbc. Hannah Moscovich is not only one of our all-time favourite writers, but she's become an internationally acclaimed playwright whose work has been produced around the world. She's been the recipient of numerous accolades for her writing, including the prestigious Trillium Book Award and the Wynham Campbell Prize administered by Yale University. Her off-Broadway hit, Old Stock, A Refugee Love Story, was a New York Times critic's pick and was nominated for a Drama Desk Award. Hannah possesses a unique ability to combine the tragic, the humorous, and the shocking, while also delivering intellectually and emotionally complex work. We are thrilled to have Hannah show what a young wife ought to know in our season this year. If you're a fan of Hannah's work, you can also listen to her critically acclaimed play, Bunny, available as part of season one on our feed. Here is my interview with Hannah Moscovich. Warning, the following episode contains mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. I want to start by asking you, for anyone who hasn't already heard uh, What a Young Wife Ought to Know, can you tell us what the play is about? (laughs) I thought I'd start with something really easy. Yeah, it should be, right? But for whatever reason, summarizing my own work is hard. And I work in TV, so you would think that pitching ideas would be my forte. But I actually, it's because I never know whether to talk about the plot, the premise, the character's the conceit, like what part of what it's about to talk about. Um, How about the plot for, for to start with? Because we'll get into the, the meat of the play later. Uh, okay. The plot is, um, what's the plot? Here's what happens in this story. Sophie uh, is a 
young teenage working class woman living in 1920s Ottawa. Um, and she falls in love with a stable hand named Johnny. And then all the trouble starts because in the 1920s, even though it's a world that is technologically modern in many ways, machine guns, electricity, cars, gramophones, there's no illegal birth control. Um, and so like many women of her generation, she struggles with how many children she's having. Tell me a little bit about the inspiration. I heard it was inspired by a book that you found at a garage sale. Yeah, so it's a book called Dear Mrs. Stopes, and it's a compilation of letters that were written to uh, Dr. Marie Stopes, who was a pioneering birth control advocate in the 1920s in the UK. And the letters are all people, mostly women, asking her for birth control information because, of course, at the time, birth control was illegal and taboo. And the letters are incredibly similar to one another, almost as though they're form letters, but they're all written by unique women. Um, they all start with a list. They all start with, you know, I've had 11 children, three I've buried, um, two stillbirths and one miscarriage. And I'm 40 and I want to stop having children. Can you help me? And uh, I never heard anything like these letters. They're only 100 years old. They're from an era in human history when we had, you know, good technology. We had electricity and cars and machine guns, um, gramophones, phones. But women's lives were dominated by the fact that they couldn't control how many children they had. And so their lives were completely alien to me. And the letters are sexual and they're frank. And um, I'd never, just never heard anything sexual and frank written in the 1920s. So they got my attention. If I can ask, what was sexual about them? Because that seems like a such a taboo thing, especially in the 20s. So a lot of the time it was women talking about sex with their husbands and how it felt and that they liked it or that it hurt or the fact that they couldn't get their husband to not rape them or that they wanted to increase sexual pleasure. Like it was just, you know, it was like what it shows you is a world in which women are wholly ignorant about um, their bodies, about sexuality, about childbirth, about miscarriage. They don't have any information and they're sort of calling out in the dark, asking for someone to help them. Yeah, and then the letters also describe what it's like to miscarry in the 1920s, what childbirth is like in the 1920s, what botched abortions are like in the 1920s. They're really graphic letters. And yeah, and I mean, if you read any of the literature of the day, you know, Virginia Woolf or T.S. Eliot, none of it registers any of what's happening with, you know, in the like, in what end up being the untold stories of the women of the 1920s. I think what struck me when I read the script was just how ignorant I was about my privilege to have access to birth control. How did it strike you as a woman and as a mom today to read those kinds of things? Well, I think what struck me was that these lives of women, they lived 100 years ago, and their lives were wholly alien, unrecognizable like a foreign country. So it just felt like a, an untold part of women's history that existed 100 years ago. So it felt important to me and also just shockingly original and new, like nothing I'd ever read or heard. 
I think what's interesting about the play, aside from the really graphic elements of what women had to endure, was that it does touch on women's desire, which seems to miss from a lot of work in general. And you touch on that in Bunny as well. Why do you think that's important to include? Well, I think it gets forgotten in the... I do think it gets like wholly left aside in this question of, you know, all of the sort of physical shit that goes on with women's bodies. We forget that there's also like inhabiting our bodies also involves um, not just like gross childbirth and gross miscarriages, but also desire. And in fact, in the play, what happens is, you know, Sophie has a lot of sexual, wants sexy times with her husband, and she can't because the only solution to not having more children is abstinence. And so she lives in a marriage. Like, you'd think at least if you get married, you could get some sex out of it. But in this era, basically, you can't. You have to, you know, their solutions to childbirth or to too many children are, you know, separate beds and try more gardening and um, abstain from sex. And so it creates a problem, which is, like, there is sexual desire in people, and yet like at you know if you are living in poverty and wages are set by whatever industry you're working in then you actually can't afford to have that many children so it's a problem of the industrial revolution and it's a you know it's a problem of desire versus childbirth you know in your play you make johnny very charming and desirable and you sense the intimacy and the need that they have to be intimate what did you put into that character why did you make him so charming and desirable <laughs> Uh, well, my joke was always, like, if you're going to put two abortions in a play, you should probably have a charming man, honestly. But I think also, um, you know, there were a number of reasons. Uh, a lot of the time, letters were written by husbands to Dr. Marie Stope, and they were asking, they were like, I can't watch my wife go through this one more time. Every childbirth, she gets sicker and weaker and frailer. Please, I love her, and can you please do something to save the love of my life? The other reason I wanted Johnny to represent is that um, a lot of the time when we think about the pre-birth control era, the story tends to be there's a young woman and she gets seduced by a rich older man and then he leaves her in the dust and she has to go to a back alley abortionist and he botches the abortion and she dies. So we know that story really well, but actually the story that is in the letters is not that one at all. In fact, that one's not represented once. The story is it's women who have had five to 11 children already and countless, you know, miscarriages and stillbirths, and they want to stop having children because they feel that five to 11 children is enough. And they love their husbands or they tolerate their husbands, but they're definitely married women. They're not young, seducible things. And that's definitely the story of Sophie. So I wanted to represent the story of the women who actually were seeking birth control at the time, which wasn't like those young, seduced, pretty girls. It was, you know married women with five or more children. And why did you make the characters working-class people? I have so many reasons for that, actually. A lot of the time, the most desperate women were, in fact, the working-class women, and they represent the bulk of the letters in the Dear Dr. Stopes book. Partly they're the most desperate because they can't afford back-alley abortions of any kind. So if they do get themselves into trouble, they can't afford the 50 to $75. In fact, they're often making 10 to $20 a week. So they're priced out, and any kind of birth control, like 
you know, prophylactics of the time are black market. So once again, it's working class people who are priced out. So I probably wanted to include them because they are the category of people. Also, you know, there's a massive number of working class people in the 1920s, more than now, less middle class people then. So it just represents more of the population then. But also I have drawn in what a young wife ought to know from my own family. My own family on my mother's side is Irish, and there are fragments or pieces in what a young wife ought to know that are the story of my grandfather and my great-grandmother on that side, and they were working class. And so I wanted to use what I know about the working class because you know my mother was born into the working class and my grandfather and grandmother and all their great-grandparents were shit-poor Irish people who just had one potato to lick, essentially. They were the poorest of the poor. Like, there's nothing like Irish poverty. It's so low. And so I know what that is because it's my family. And I think, you know, the working class, (laughs) yeah, I guess the problems of the working class of poverty exacerbate the problems of birth control. Like, they auto-catalyze each other because the more kids you have, the more poor you get. Reading that play and hearing it performed, it just makes it seem terrifying to be a woman at that time. What do you think is the reason it's so relevant now? I I think I had read that you had started to present it in 2015 and had to convince people that this was a relevant piece of theater, even though it's set in the 20s. Yeah. You know, when I started working on it, its relevance didn't occur to me for some reason. It wasn't like on my radar, you know, as a rubric to judge my work by. I just wasn't thinking about it. I was just like, wow, this I've never heard anything like this. This is original. And it's women's voices that are part of history and they're gone. Like, I just don't know about this. So I guess I was interested in its originality. Yeah, I was sort of just stunned by it. I think because it did represent a world that was before birth control and we now live post-birth control, you know, like our world is so post-birth control. So I was stunned that I didn't know any of this. But then, yeah, people started to ask me, like, well, why is this, you know, relevant? We've won this battle. And I didn't have an answer. Like, I just was like, I don't know. It's women's history. Like, I don't, I don't know. But then I think a bunch of things happened and there's been a sort of groundswell feminist movement and Me Too has happened. So within like a year, people went from being like, I don't think this is relevant to being like, this is so relevant. So I don't, actually know what happened exactly. I mean, I think maybe, you know, Michael Pence became the vice president in the States and, you know, he doesn't think women should be allowed abortions even in cases of incest and rape. You know, um, so, you know, he's pretty close to controlling America. So I think, you know, people suddenly found the questions more relevant just because, you know, our reproductive rights are um, under threat. So I think that's part of it. And I think, you know, the world feels like it is both turning for women and against women um, in a polarized way right now. And so suddenly people feel like this this fight is more relevant. But, you know, honestly, I'm, I guess I'm just not a, not a playwright that considers relevance. So you don't write for a topic. You don't write for a moment in history. You're, you're writing more from just an interesting story. Yeah, I just was like, this is original to me. I hope other people... I'm just hoping it generalizes from me to other people, that other people are interested in it like I am. Um, it, yeah, I mean, it just feels like a very urgent piece, even though it is said in the 20s. It's a reminder that that really wasn't that long ago and that at least with um, the right to choose, it's 
it's a very precarious thing for for women, and it always seems to be under threat. So paint such a haunting and vivid picture of what's at stake for women. Well, sure. Like in an era, too, where The Handmaid's Tale TV adaptation has become, like, you know, the, one of the most watched shows of the, you know, 2018 Honestly, it's in the same zone as Handmaid's Tale. I'm like, here's a horror story of women. <laughs> you know, it's it's the same thing. But it's I'm not like, fantasy. It's it's real. It's reality. It's history. Yeah. So it's like it relies on the authentic. I know that reading some of the scenes were really intense. I've heard that there's been fainting in the audience of the live show, and you can maybe talk about that in a moment. But I'm just wondering why you think hearing about a medical procedure makes people feel that way. For myself, I feel like there's always something so taboo about women's bodies, talking about birth and periods and miscarriages and abortions, aside from just the medical aspect of it. What do you think? Why do you think that is? I think the only answer is a feminist one. Um, and it's the, you know, it's the song we all know, just like, oh, women are gross. It's just misogyny that's been absorbed into how we think and into our ideas about, like, what's tolerable to hear about. I think, you know, I, I can't think of anything else. I mean, you know, and I think, like, Christianity should probably, you know, get, you know, held up that banner for a long time and, you know, made all of this stuff taboo. At first, we didn't understand what was happening in we didn't know that people were fainting because of the play because people would never <laughs> say that. So, you know, we would have someone faint. And I mean, like, other people fainted. Seven people fainted and we had to stop the show and call the paramedics. So <laughs> that's how many times the show stopped. And it always stopped at the same point. Like, by the fourth time we had to stop the show at the same point and call paramedics to help someone out of the theater who'd fainted, then we knew it was probably not because they'd eaten too large a dinner or they were just coming off the flu, which is usually what they said. And they were very apologetic and would often book to come back and see the play another night. <laughs> was it women or men or a combination? It was mostly men. Yeah, so which is counterintuitive, I know. I think women were fainting too, but just a little bit more quietly and in their seat. But yeah, men would struggle to get to the aisle and then pass out like on their faces flat out in the aisle. And then paramedics would have to be called because the possibility for concussion and head injury. And the actors would pause on stage. And in fact, I saw them, I, I saw a show where the paramedics were called. I just happened to be in the audience that night catching up with the show. And by then, the actors were so practiced at pausing at that point that they just did it very gracefully and they knew what was happening and they just waited and held on stage until the paramedics helped the person out. Did anybody ever say, hey, Hannah, this is too much. We need to, we need to pull this back. We're losing I, uh, audience members left, right, and center. Yeah, well, at seven, I started to be like, by the time we hit seven, I was like, is this desirable? Do I want to have created a show that sickens the audience to this degree? And I'm still kind of out on it. I'm like, wow, fuck, that's a lot of people to have made faint. I don't know. You know, I guess they're feeling it. I guess that's good. They're they're watching. They're paying attention. They're not bored. But I don't know if I want, like, I don't know, is the opposite of bored, like, totally sickened? I don't know. I don't know how to feel. <laughs> it's funny because when I read it, I found it hard to read, but the must, the visual must have just been... Really yeah. intense or, or being in the theater and hearing it. 
Well, the funny thing is the visual's not that intense. Really? Like, I don't know what happens in people's imagination because the visuals, like, you know, they, they show, like, there's a visual, but we don't show any blood. We don't show any guts. Really? You don't see anything. You don't see anything. So I don't know. I think the it, idea. it's just the idea of a botched uh, surgery on a woman that makes people go fucking crazy. And if it was, like, heart surgery, it just wouldn't have the same... I don't think so. I think because it's somewhere in the zone of, like, vaginas and blood and guts coming out of vaginas and things going into vaginas that pierce things up there. And, like, it's also, like, the beginning of life is up there and we just lose our minds. We just are—we can't take it. And I—you know what? Honestly, I think maybe I got so deep into the material when I was working on it that I I became desensitized to just how graphic it was. And then, like, I go and see the play and I'm like, fuck, this is an experience. Like, it's not like— yeah, it is an experience to go and see it. Did it take you some time to get over hearing and reading about and researching about what's involved in a botched abortion to become desensitized? Or were you able to sort of be clinical about it? No, I mean, it's a heavily researched piece over, you know, uh, eight, seven, eight years. So, no, I think I did just slowly get desensitized. And I tend to take on uh, pretty difficult <laughs> topics. Not every time. Holy shit. I'm making myself sound like something I'm not. But, uh, you know, I write about war zones a lot. And this this is on par with that, I'd say. Uh, in your piece, you talk about some of the primitive methods of birth control mm-hmm. back in the 1920s. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you learned? <laughs> some of them are pretty funny in a gruesome way. Like, uh, yeah, people would, you know, shove all manner of things up there, offer them up, as they said at the time. For instance, acid. So there's a scene in the piece where they're using tannic acid as birth control. And and it's a very sort of funny scene. I mean, it's a, it's a sweet scene in a sense that they're trying so hard to make this work, even though, like, they're using acid to try and prevent. <laughs> and the acid is baked into, like, what look like brownies, just so you know, like, you would, it's like a homemade birth control involving, like, cocoa butter and tannic acid, and you would, like, bake it into a tray in the oven, and then you would cut a cube off and stick it up your vagina, just get it right up there, and then burn the shit out of yourself and your husband, but you wouldn't have a baby. Well, I guess, <laughs> like, whatever it takes. <laughs> Um, no, I know. And I should say structurally, the piece is actually a comedy and a coming of age story, like yes. a, a romance, a comedy, a coming of age story. Like that's how it's structured. Um, you know, it's just that there's I, I pull in incredibly dark material into that that structure. But on a structural level, it's a romance. And I make as many jokes as I can to try and mitigate the, you know, the darkness. That's my thing. That's the sensibility. I love the title, What a Young Wife Ought to Know. How did you come up with that? Oh, it's from a a how-to book for young wives from the turn of the century. It was actually called What Every Young Wife Ought to Know. Is that the and it was sort of a not by Maria Stopes book, or is that no? It's a totally other book, but it was very much like in vogue in the day to you know write books that sort of very sort of euphemistically covered some of the taboo topics around uh, marriage. It's a great title because it makes you want to know what what ought she to know. Yeah, well, I try and give you an answer by the end. The beginning of the play, there's a, a hint to the end of the play. And I just wonder if you knew the end when you started writing it. No, I wasn't sure what my ending would be. But, you know, like always with endings, once you have it, then you write back from that. 
or at least for me, that's how I do it. Um, once you have it, then you know what the play is. Then you know what you're up to. And you write in your sort of Hannah Moskovich style of direct address. Can you talk a little bit about that style that you use <laughs> and why you used it in this particular piece? Well, you know, it's really funny. Like, it was actually Carly Maga, who works for the Toronto Star as a theater critic, who said to me that all my work is confessional. And so I just did a piece that actually was confessional, like was nonfiction myself on stage uh, called Secret Life of a Mother. And she was talking to me about it and she was saying, well, all your work is essentially confessional because you always have a character turn to the audience and tell their worst thoughts to the audience. And I was like, I love that. I, I think I want access to the psychology of people. I want to know what they're up against. I want to know, you know, I want, yeah, I want the interiority of people's experiences. And I love, you know, interpersonal conflict, obviously. I mean, I'm a theater artist and, you know, theater is the medium of interpersonal conflict. Um, all those great dinner party gone wrong plays. Um, but I really like, like, you know, as per Shakespeare, I guess, like I really like the soliloquy. I really want the the, the audi- audience to hear a confession from the main character about what they want and what they're doing and to get their subtext out. And I also really like the relationship between my main character, my hero or heroine, to be fraught, like to be tense so that the audience has to reckon with uh, an objective that's being played out with them. And so, you know, in this case, my character is really looking for an answer to a question she has from the audience to a dilemma, which I won't say because I don't want to spoil everything. <laughs> and your characters often, in doing the direct address, obviously they're breaking the fourth wall and talking, not just confessing, but talking to the audience directly and then being within the play. Do you find that hard to go back and forth? Uh, you know, it, it takes some work because you're trying as a writer to manage the flow of information and exposition and what you have in the confessional pieces, you know, has to be counterbalanced by what's in the So any change you make anywhere um, ricochets, affects the other part, although I think that's the case with any any piece. But yeah, no, for sure, it's there's slightly different muscles that are at work in a dialogue between characters and then a confessional piece with the audience and then how you run them together becomes incredibly important and then you need you know, a director who's a badass, good at transitions, you know, and good at creating time and space with you as you move the character through worlds. Yeah. So, you know, I think in some ways it's a more challenging form than the sort of fourth wall pieces that I've made. This is the second piece that we've done of yours. The first one was Bunny, which if you haven't heard, I highly recommend that you listen to. And it's been really interesting to work with you on Bunny and now on this play, knowing that you have that radio drama background. You were one of the main writers on Afghanida. Can you talk a little bit about your experience writing for audio? I just think you have kind of a unique perspective that a lot of playwrights wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, I spent a number of seasons working on uh, CBC's uh, hit radio drama Afghanida. And so, yeah, for sure, I think, like, um, you know, there are some marked differences between theater and uh, radio drama, but the skills transfer. And I, yeah, I, I particularly like direct address, which always seems to work really well in radio drama. And the radio drama that I worked on had direct address. And so I transferred right in just seamlessly into working on a radio drama without any trouble. Um, I know that you're a mom 
I know that you're very busy. Um, I know you're working on something right now. You've had your hit, Old Stock. You you did a show at Tarragon last year, Bunny, and uh, probably a million things that I'm not mentioning right now. I'm just wondering how you balance it with being a mom, mm-hmm. considering that's some of the subject of this particular play. Well, yeah. I mean, when uh, What a Young Wife Ought to Know was premiering in 2015, I was pregnant with Elijah, and I had— I came close to miscarrying him during the rehearsal process for What a Young Wife Ought to Know. I was four months in. It would have been a shitty miscarriage. It was going to be a bad one. And then I ended up on some bed rest. You know, I was told, like, don't fall down. Don't carry things. And that was in the middle of rehearsal for What a Young Wife Ought to Know. I was in bed and, you know, oh, you know, with a baby, ironically enough. Um, but, yeah, uh, yes, I mean, it's just a fucking chaos, honestly. I don't know how I do it or how anyone does it. And I always want to know other people's stories. I'm always like, what, how are you doing this? Like, I wish there was a support group for um, writer moms so we could talk about how we're, how we're doing it. I mean, I think, you know, I have a really good daycare now in place, so that's great. And I really think they're masterful at what they do. Um, so that makes me really calm in the days. And I drop Elijah off at this um like super fab daycare and then I work like a fucking maniac between 9 a.m. and 4.30 p.m. and then I go and get him and I'm a mom all night. Are you more disciplined as a writer than you were before? Did you work like that? Because some people I interview and they're like, I start at 8 and I finish at 5 and some people are like, I write when I feel like it and I'm up all night but you don't really have that option when you're a mom. No brag, no brag. But I think I was fairly disciplined before I was a mom, honestly. Um, so I'm not sure I had like much to gain there. Like I, didn't, I don't know if I could there was any ramping up I could do. So I think I've gotten less because I'm so tired. I try and work like a maniac, and I do. But there's the like I'm fighting exhaustion in a way I didn't used to. So like I'm disappointed by my lack of transformation. Everyone promised me I would get so much more disciplined, and I'm like I don't. I maxed that shit out, and now I'm just really tired and trying to be disciplined. I don't know what everyone's talking about, but I love my son so much. He's you know there's a whole like basement of meaning in my life that wasn't there before. So I I feel like I read a quote once that. Uh, a mom said that before her kids, her life was all mood and after it, it was all meaning. And I was like, yeah, that's definitely my experience. Do you think it's impacted your writing at all being a mom? Has it changed anything? Uh, For sure. Yeah. Because I feel like, you know, kids were symbolic before. It's so stupid. And now kids are actual. So I think old stock, a refugee love story, that you just were sort of talking about, I wouldn't have been able to write that before I was a mother. I wouldn't have been able to write that because I just feel, I feel grief more. I feel more than I did before. Can you tell me a little bit about Secret Life of a Mother? (laughs) And And did you not start to write that before you were a mom? Secret Life of a Mother, yeah. Well, we signed up to do that project like six years ago, and I was just thinking about if I wanted to be a mother. It's a show I made with uh, Mev Beatty and Anne-Marie Kerr and uh, Miranda DeBeer, and it's a confessional piece about miscarriage and labor and early parenthood, and and it's Mev Beatty, who is a performer, and uh, the co-collaborator, she plays Hannah Moscovich, and it's a confessional piece. So it's just what happened 
But neither of you were moms at the time? No, we were. So it's oh, the whole were. story of what happened as I became a mom. But yeah, we, we started working on it because we were looking at the culture and we were like, wow, there's really not a lot out there that's like for moms like us who just want shit to be truthful and authentic. About Like we want to know what this experience is going to actually be. And there's like a lot out there that's candy coated and a lot out there that's insincere um, and a lot out there that just doesn't feel directed to people like us, women like us. And so we were like, well, let's make a piece then. And then, but in the whole course of making that piece, um, you know, I became a mother. <laughs> so we used, we ultimately at one point decided, like we did hours and hours of verbatim interviews with new moms. But then at a certain point we were like, oh, like there's a familiarity. Once you've heard hundreds of stories, you're like, oh, this is the shape of the story. And so then we could um, make the decision that I would tell my story and Mev would play me. And then in playing me, because she's one of my very closest friends, so she plays, this is the complicated thing that I swear sounds better on stage when I say it out loud to you, but because she's one of my closest friends, she's really wrapped up in the story of my early motherhood. Um, so she was often talking about herself in the third person. Like She'd be like, Mev did this and Mev did that, and then she breaks out of character and tells the story from her perspective as well. So you get the revelation of Mev's early, all of Mev's moments in there too. This will sound like a dumb question because, of course, you're a woman and you're going to write from a female perspective and about the female experience. But how much of it is is a conscious choice to have female stories out there and how much of it is just by nature that that's what you know and can relate to? Oh, man, it's a really good question. In a way, there's such a simple answer, which is like for millennia, men have told their stories because it's what came easiest to them, right? So like we have an entire canon of stories about men and for men um, in which women, you know, come on just to like be the love interest or be the mom, probably because everything was written by men. And so in a weird way, yeah, like it's 100% in the same vein. It's what comes naturally. I am a woman. And since I have now you know, in the modern era, been authorized to tell stories, then I'm going to tell stories from my perspective, just like men told the stories from their perspective for a bajillion, bajillion all of recorded time. I think the other thing, though, is women's stories are original. And originality is one of those components of storytelling that shouldn't be underestimated. Like the audience likes to be surprised, you know, it's up there with spectacle, like people like a circus in the same way that they like something that they've never heard before. Originality gets our attention, and it's one of those sort of ways in which to hold the audience's attention to your work, like suspense or like pornography. <laughs> like, it really is. It's just one of those, you know, one of those rubrics. Um, and then on top of all of that, there's my politics. And I think, you know, I am sort of fascinated by womanhood nonstop. Um, I'm nonstop. It's just my, it is, it is a fascination of mine. I have a, um, a number of them though. I'm also pretty fascinated by war, um, which is a, you know, which is a weird, you know, weird one. I could try and like tie it to womanhood, but why bother? I just have, you know, as a writer, I have certain peculiarities, I think, and I'm super interested in the 20th century. I write about it a lot and I'm super interested in war and genocide and I'm super interested in femininity, and I think that the the one, you know, link between all of them is that it all three tend to get you up against extremes. And I think I really like extremes. I like extremes in people's lives, and I like how extreme stories can reveal character. So I think I tend to go for that. What caught you interested in war, do you think? Uh, I'm 
Jewish, <laughs> and I was one of those really weird kids that got obsessed with the Holocaust, and I became a World War II buff as a result. I am like a Wikipedia of Nazis. I can tell you anything about any Nazi you like off the top of my head. Try me. Um, <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> oh, gross. What a stupid... Anyway, um, uh, yeah, so I think somehow from there, I got sort of interested in the extreme moments in history. Like, what are those absolute extremes where society has broken down and we've hit the zombie apocalypse and all systems have ground to a halt? And then, like, what happens to people's personalities in, you know because it tends to, you know, show you who you are. I'm curious how you started to write. What, what was the impetus for you to become a writer? Were you like a kid that wrote? Were you an actor? What was your start? Uh, it's so mysterious. Like the beginnings of things, the beginning of why I'm a writer, and the beginning of every project in a weird way is the most mysterious thing and the hardest to speak to. Like I don't really know. I mean, you When know, did you write your first play? Uh, when I was a, an acting student at National Theatre School of Canada. But I wrote poems when I was a kid, like shitty poems to my boyfriends, and I kept a diary. But who knows, like, many children do that, so who knows if that meant anything. But yeah, I know. Yeah, I think when I was a student of acting at the National Theatre School, I started to write, like, real full-length plays and mean it, for sure. Yeah. And your initial goal was to be an actor, and you made the switch over at some point? Yeah, but I don't think I was ever really an actor. I think I really liked um, texts. Like, I really liked plays. I really liked them. And so I wanted to, like, read them out loud, which isn't the same as wanting to be an actor. I discovered really quickly once I was, you know, in an acting program and, uh, you know, just, like, admiring texts and, like, wanting to roll around in them and be with the author isn't wanting to be an actor because being an actor has all sorts of components to it that are not that, like putting on costumes and shit, which I hated doing and also didn't like coming on stage on my cue, didn't like having to remember that, often miss my cues. Uh, mm, yeah. <laughs> so I was really bad at it and uh, and also disinterested in it ultimately. So really bad at it because I just didn't want to do it, I don't think. But I did want to write. Um, and so, you know, while I was at National Theatre School, I started writing plays. And then they wanted to switch me into the playwriting program. I was very offended. I refused. And then I left theatre school and I never wrote – I never acted again and I only wrote plays. So, Because you're such a accomplished playwright, writer. I'm just curious if you have any advice for any female playwrights or writers that are just getting started. Anything you learned along the way that you would pass on? <laughs> um, if you can, find an apartment with very low rent. Um, bartending is really good for making money. You make a lot more per hour than working retail. Uh, produce your own work. Find collaborators whose work you really admire and work with them consistently. That's all I've got. That's it. I think those are good. Can you tell us anything about what is uh, happening next for you? Is there anything you can share at this time? Or So, yeah, I do have some commissions that are really good ones, companies I'm super into working with, like Stratford. Um, I have a commission with them. I have a commission with Tarragon Theatre, my home theatre, called Sexual Misconduct of the Middle Classes. I have a 
commission with 2B Theater in Halifax. I work with them a lot called uh, Red Like Fruit. I have um, a project um, about the journalist Nellie Bly with Opera Philadelphia, composed, I'm writing the libretto, and uh, a really talented composer, American composer named uh, Renee Orth is composing it. And then I have a series of um, TV and uh, film projects as well. Amazing. It's great to hear somebody working so much (laughs) as a writer. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a privilege to speak to you and to to be able to podcast what a young wife ought to know. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you for doing it. Like I've said to you guys, I love podcasts. I'm like such an enthusiastic, I'm like a fanatic podcast listener. So I'm so happy to join the tribe. That was Laura Mullen's interview with playwright Hannah Moscovich. We'd love to hear what you think of our show. You can email us at playme at cbc.ca. And please consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes to help us get the word out about Playme. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Theatre and on Instagram at Playme Podcast. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The Senior Director of Audio Innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley. The Associate Producer is Pippa Johnstone. This episode was edited by Chris Tolley. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is produced by Expect Theatre in partnership with CBC Podcasts. For more information on our plays and artists, please visit playmepodcast.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.